the struggle bus. How many of you had a week that was similar to that this week where you were running around like crazy? It's okay if, you're ki if you don't have kids or if your kids are out of the house and you still had that kind of week. Many of us have mornings like that and days like that that just feel chaotic, like we are just on the struggle bus. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I have, to, I have a little bit of a habit that happens in my house and in our family. It actually happens a lot with my younger brother. When he was young, any time around, let's say September, really even around this time, when the grocery stores and the different stores used to start putting out Halloween decorations, he used to do something very specific. You see, he didn't, he still doesn't really like Halloween and all the scary stuff, and I don't blame him, but he would, to use the phrase, dig his heels in. Have you ever heard that phrase? He would just completely stop and become immovable at the very entrance of the store. Before he ever even saw anything, he would just stop. I'm not doing that. I'm not going in there. Do any of you have a dog that is like that, that just digs their heels in, and when they don't want to do something, they just plop down and become immovable? Well, that's a little bit like what happens in our story today. So last week we talked about the um, book of Joshua, and Joshua led the Israelites for many, many years. And in his leadership, he brought the people of Israel into a new land. But what happens after Joshua dies is that he gathers the people together and he tells them about God's promise and how they are to be faithful to God. But generations start to go by. In fact, there are 25 years of leadership that happen after Joshua dies. And the people begin to forget about Joshua and his leadership. They kind of forget about God and what God has told them to do. And they begin to find that they fall away from God. So today we're reading from this book in the Bible called the Book of Judges. This is this 300-year period, what is called the Judges, where the Israelites are in the land that God has promised them. But over and over again, they continue to turn away from God and then find themselves in some sort of disaster or some sort of fight or some sort of oppression and a need to be saved. This is where the Judges come in. Every judge comes, God calls up a leader, and those judges come, and they come and save the Israelites. They go to army, they go to battle, and then there's peace in the land again, and the Israelites are free again until they forget again, and they turn away from God, and they're back on that struggle bus once again, in need of someone to help them, in need of a savior, in need of remembering God's rescue of them. So you can see this struggle bus metaphor that we are referring to in this series. So today we're talking about one of those judges. Now some of these judges are ones that um, do what is great. They're really great leaders. They're really great, great military leaders. And some of them, as we're going to talk about in a couple weeks, are not as good. They're more ineffective. And we see the fallout of that. But this is a lot like different movies and, and um, TV series that we watch right now. If you've ever watched the show Breaking Bad, it reminds me a little bit of the book of Judges. Now you might be saying, that's weird. Why would you say that? Well, because the main character in Breaking Bad 
continues to find himself in a pickle, find himself in a really problematic situation and in need of getting out of it over and over again. I have a friend who refuses to watch that series Breaking Bad because she said, you know, there's just no redemption. There's no reconciliation. I can't watch something that doesn't have reconciliation or redemption. That's kind of how the book of Judges feels sometimes. If we were to read the book of Judges in a vacuum, you would think, gosh, where is the redemption for the people of God? Where is the reconciliation? Why does this keep happening over and over again? But the good news about our Bible is that we aren't supposed to read it in a vacuum. Our historical context gives us what happens during this time period, but the Bible as a whole, our living word of God, shows us that we are not only supposed to see these stories as a way to remember what to do, but also as a reminder of maybe what not to do. So we're reading this story about Deborah and the Israelites and falling over and over again, this thing that could be called a tragedy. The people of God failing to learn from experience over and over again, digging their heels in. They're at war once again. They find themselves in a place of oppression. So we're going to start reading today in Judges chapter 4. And I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a, um, of a warning. Um, this isn't the uh, most cheerful book of the Bible. Um, and uh, it's also a little bit violent. So we're skipping some of the parts that are a little bit more violent today. The other thing I need to tell you is that I'm not reading it from my beautiful Bible today because I needed it in 14 point font because there's a lot of really hard words. So bear with me as I try really hard to get through these difficult words and then we'll hear about the story of Deborah. All right, starting in verse one. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned over Hazor. The commander of his army was Sesera, who lived in Her Hiroshimeth Hagoim. I think that's right. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help and for the and for for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites' cruelty for 20 years. It's important, 20 years, keep that in mind. At that time, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, a judge, was judge of, judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Ebenoam, from Kedesh of Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, position yourself at Mount Tabor, ten, taking 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the generals of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon, that sounds good, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." Barik said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sesera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barik to Kedesh. Barik summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went up with him. 
Okay, so let's stop right there and take a breath. So here's what's going on. The Israelites are back in oppression. They've been in oppression for 20 years. So oftentimes when we read about these stories, we get to read them chapter after chapter, back to back to back. But one of the things to keep in mind here is that this is happening over decades and even centuries and generations. So this ongoing story of the Israelites is not one that happens in a very short period of time. It is one that happens for a long, long time. Um, And so when God calls up Deborah, here's some of the things we hear about her in verse 4. Deborah's a prophet. She is the wife of Lapidoth. Now some translations will say that the wife of Lapidoth means that It is the wife of a man who is named that. Um, This also can be translated as woman of the town. And then there's other translations that actually say that a more accurate translation of this is woman of torches or fiery woman. So we get this very interesting image of who this particular judge is. Deborah is the only female judge. She is also the only one that becomes a judge before she wins a battle, or at least a battle that we are told about. When we meet up with Deborah, we find that she is both a prophet and a judge, and we don't have to hear anything to know that about her or for her to deserve that. That's simply who she already is. And if we take this one um, description of her, we can see that she is not only a woman who is a prophet and a military leader, she is actually the one judging Israel. They're the one, she's the one who they come to, and she gives out judicial rulings for them. She's someone who has great clarity and wisdom. She's someone that the people go to over and over again. So God raises her up. She's called a prophet, so she speaks on behalf of the Lord. And she says, all right, we've got to raise up an army. We've got to defeat this king, Jabin, who's been oppressing our people. So she calls upon Barak, who, uh, Barak, Barak. I wanted to say Barak, and then Pastor Chris told me this morning that it was Barak or Barak, one of those two. Um, She raises up this military leader and tells him to go and take an army out to this battlefield. And Barak says to her, okay, I'll go, but I'm not going alone. If you're so sure about this, you go with me. So instead of Deborah saying, well, that's not my role or do what I told you to do, she says, okay, I'll go with you. But know that the victory in this isn't going to be your victory. It will fall at the hands of a woman. She's getting a little bit of her prophesying on. She's um, professing about something that will happen during this battle. And it's actually not her that she is talking about. So we read on about this battle starting in verse 11. It says, now Haber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites, that is, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had encamped as far away as Ellen Bezananamen, which is near Kedesh. When Sesera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone to the Mount of Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him, from Herosheth HaGoim, to the Wadi Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, up, 
For this is the day on which the Lord has given Sesra into your hand. Has not the Lord gone before you? So Barak went down from the Mount of Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And the Lord threw Sesra and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sesra got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. While Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Heroshith Hagoim, all the army of Sesera fell by the sword. Not one was left. So in uh, verses 17 through 22, we read about then what happens to this commander, uh, Sesera. Um, but we're not going to read it because it's a little bit graphic and a little bit violent. So you can read that on your own time. But let's just say that um, we also get rid of the, uh, uh, the, the chief commander, Sesera, as well after he flees. Then in verse 23, it says, So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. So we hear this very um, warlike history story in connection to this judge, Deborah. But what you hear at the beginning of this story is the thing that happens at every beginning chapter of every judge. The Israelites did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They found themselves in trouble. They needed saving. God raised up a judge to help lead the Israelites through this time, and then God delivers them. But what is different about Deborah is quite a few things. One, Deborah seems to really dig her heels in. She's not just a military leader here. She is someone who is very consistent and committed to who she believes God is and what God is calling her specifically to do. We see this in the way in which she is a prophet. She is not just giving orders and commands. She believes she is hearing and discerning the word of God and delivering it to the people and the commanders so that these commanders can go to battle. Deborah is somebody who I would consider to be in the arena. She's not a bystander in this story. And even when she is asked upon to continue to be a bystander by Barak, who says, okay, well, I'll go into battle as long as you go with me. She says, okay, I'll go with you. Now, mind you that this is the only female judge, and of course, it was not a thing for women to go to, to battle, and it wasn't even a thing for women to go to war at all, especially not even for a woman to be a judge. And so Barak puts it back on her and says, if you trust this plan so much, will you go out there yourself? And so she steps foot in the arena. She decides to be part of what happens, not just to talk about what happens, but to physically be part of what is happening for the deliverance of the people. Being in the, re the arena reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from Teddy Roosevelt that says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the are arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who at the best knows at, in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Have you ever heard that quote before? 
It's not the one who is in the bleachers, the bystander. It is the one who is in the arena, the one who is daring greatly that deserves the credit. Because even if they fail, at least they're in the arena. Even if they fail, they are daring greatly. This is the title of Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. And in it, she says, vulnerability is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up and be seen when we have no control over the outcome. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. Vulnerability is not about winning or losing. It is about showing up. Courage is not about showing weakness. Vulnerability is not about showing weakness, but instead it is our greatest measure of courage to show up just as we are, to show up just who we are, no matter who that is, to show up. Now, oftentimes what I find is that we dig our heels in just like the Israelites when we don't know what the outcome of something is. When we don't know how things are going to go, when God sends us a message or when God calls us to do something, how often do we dig our heels in and stay in the bleachers because we don't know what the outcome might be? For Deborah, this is exactly what happened for her. She knew what God had called her to do. She knew what she was being told to do, but she didn't know the outcome. She was going to have to do what the Israelites were failing to do over and over again. And while they were continuing to be on a struggle bus, she was going to have to trust God. She was going to have to trust that even if she didn't know the outcome, it was better to be in the arena. It was better to be faithful and step a foot in than it was to simply stay on the sidelines and watch what happens. The struggle bus that the Israelites are on is this obstacle that we find over and over again. It's why these stories are such a tragedy because what you want for these people is to do it differently. Isn't that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? This is what the Israelites continue to do. But Deborah shows them a different way. There's judges in this book Judges that we see that continue to give the same as example as Deborah. And then there's some who fall short, who completely give over to their own humanity, who think it's all about their strength. And we're going to read about them as well. But God's people have always fared best when they put their faith in God. When they step into the arena and trust God, not so that they know all the answers or they know the results, but instead to know that God will be God and God will be faithful. So my question for you is simple today. This is a really complicated story and these are really complicated books in the Bible, but if we were to boil it down to why does this matter to us beyond history and its its importance in history, it shows us how we're supposed to step in how we're supposed to get involved. So my question for you today is this, where is God calling you to step in? To step out in some way, to be in the arena in some way. I find that there's a really interesting quote between the difference between interest and commitment. Interest is when you have, interest is something that is permitted when circumstances permit. 
But when you are committed, you accept not excuses, only results. The difference between interest and commitment is often the difference between being a bystander and being a participant. And do you know that's what we do even in worship? When we come to worship, you are not coming just to be a bystander to a performance or to watch a presentation. You are a participant in worship. In the same way, this is not just a worship service. If you've heard me over the last several weeks, you might have heard that I refer to this worship service as our modern worship community. Because what we do for one hour of worship on Sunday mornings is just a fraction of a percentage of where God is calling us to be as a community. It happens outside of these doors. It happens outside of this hour. This hour is just the pep rally for what God is calling us to do. So think for a few minutes about where God is calling you to step in or step out. I know some of those places may be daunting or overwhelming and I know for sure you're not gonna know what results or the outcomes they might be. But what I know is that God calls us to be faithful. God calls us not to know the answers but instead to be faithful. And what I know that you will find is a deeper trust in God in the midst of it. A deeper understanding of who God is and God's love for us. The God that builds communities like these so that when we come together like this, you know in the midst of the struggle bus, when you are in one of those moments of the struggle bus, you know the people that are sitting around you. You're not on the bus alone. So today, whether it's joining our greeting team or helping to figure out one of the book studies or one of the Bible studies that are right outside that you could sign up for today to dive deeper in your faith, whether it's teaching one of our Sunday school classes or being a part of a Sunday school class, whatever it looks like today, where is God calling you to step out? And as you step out, God calls you to a faithfulness that no one can fully comprehend except those who trust in God and who see over and over again that when we turn back to God, that's where we hear clarity, that's where we hear wisdom, that's where we see the story of Deborah, the fiery woman who said, yes, I'll go. Yes, I will go. You don't go alone. I'll go with you. Next week, we're going to continue this story of Deborah because it spans both chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the Judges. And I love chapter 5 because in it, it, it is a poetic moment. The same story, but in poetry instead of prose. And it's Deborah giving the statements of what happens in her own words. Today, as we continue worship and as we sing this next song, I want to invite you to just to continue to dive deep into where God is calling you to step out. And know that God steps with you and know that this community of faith only gets closer together as we step towards one another and take a step towards God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that even when we turn away and even when we dig our heels in and want to know what's going to happen and want to know the results, we thank you that you continue to be faithful. 
because it is in your faithfulness and in the stories of those in the Bible that have been faithful that we figure out how to be more faithful ourselves. So God, help us to step in. Help us to step up. When we hear you calling and saying, I will go, will you come with me? Help us to follow. God, today, be our vision. Give us a vision of what it looks like to step in. Give us a vision of what it looks like to be your people. Give us a vision as a community of faith of what is possible when we take that step to deepen our faith and our walk with you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.